You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. Great to see you. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Brady Goodwin. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. A great privilege and the opportunity this morning to share with you uh, from God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 9? We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29 this morning. Give you a moment to get there. Genesis 9, 18 through 29. What we'll do is we'll read this text, uh, we'll pray, and we'll jump in to our time this morning looking at God's Word together. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. God's word says this, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. And as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that you would bless us by your spirit to understand what you have said and to see how it impacts our lives through its ultimate fulfillment in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that through the proclamation of your word, you would deepen our faith in you and in your gospel and that we would leave here strengthened so that we might live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of a weird story, isn't it? Um, it's one of those stories that when you look up and sometimes you're preparing to preach a sermon and you say, hey, let me see who, you know, some of the guys who've influenced me and the ways that they preach this. And so you go, all right, Charles Spurgeon, Tim Keller, John Piper, and you see how many times they preach this sermon and you realize I have now preached this text more times than they did. It's strange, but it matters. It's a text that is here on purpose. It's a text that we are looking at as part of our series. And so we're going to try to do what we can to understand what it's about and how it matters to us. Um, This is a passage that comes at the end of a long flood narrative. If you were here the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what happened to Noah and his family and the rest of the humanity in Genesis 6 through 9 
And now we come to the end of this account. And so what may seem like uh, something that's out of place, almost like an episodic fragment rather than a contributing part of the story, actually is uh, a significant aspect of the narrative. But because it has been seen as this kind of interesting section or fragment, scholars over the years have wondered, why is this passage here? And what does it mean? And so that's going to help shape the first part of our time together today in answering these questions. Why is this story here in the narrative of Genesis, and what does it mean? So we're going to do this. We're going to answer these questions by looking at how this passage actually establishes the basis for one of the major conflicts of the Old Testament between the people of Israel and the nation of Canaan. But from here, we're also going to explore why interpreting this passage rightly and seeing it in context is so significant in the way that we understand the Scriptures as a whole. A minor scene like this can lead us to one of two tendencies, either to ignore it and dismiss it as irrelevant, or actually to elevate it in such a way that it could wrongly influence our theology. And so we're going to look at a historical example of one way that this passage has been wrongly interpreted and the effect that this misinterpretation has had on the lives of people, all so that we can guard against the potential threat of the same error in our lives as well. But then lastly, we're going to come back to consider how a right interpretation of a passage like Genesis 9, 18 through 29 can actually lead us to Jesus and the hope that we share in Him as seemingly as seemingly unconnected as it might seem at first reading. Okay, so these three things. What is this story actually about? What are the dangers of misinterpreting this text and how it leads to Jesus? Okay, so first, what is this story about? This passage forms the conclusion of that Toledote section that we first began looking at in chapter 6, verse 9. And so just as a quick reminder, as we've talked about throughout our Genesis series, the Toledote structure in the book of Genesis is what identifies the main divisions in the narrative. The next Toledote section begins with chapter 10, where it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. But this means that rather than being a disconnected part of the narrative... The section at the end of chapter 9 represents the conclusion of one act as it leads into the beginning of another. And as I said a moment ago, one of the chief purposes of this passage is to help explain why um, for Israel, as they prepared to enter the land of Canaan, that the people that they would face there were as dangerous as God had said they were. So let's see how this is the case. In verse 18, we see a brief statement regarding those who left the ark after the flood subsided and, how, and when God's covenant with Noah was concluded. It says this, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. This prologue helps to set the stage for what's called the table of nations in Genesis 10, that list of all peoples of the earth following their lineage from Noah's sons. But notice the editorial comment that's mentioned between this description. Ham was the father of Canaan. This tells us that there is something more to this story than just the introduction of these progenitors of this new human race following the destruction of human life in the flood. Now, we learn more about what is happening here 
by observing the two primary divisions of this account. The commentator, Alan Ross, will use two terms that I'll borrow here as well. What we see in this text is an event and an oracle. The event is what happens in verses 20 through 23. The text will tell us that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. This language is meant to remind us of the first person who worked the ground, Adam. It tells us that Noah is to be seen as a type of new Adam who is meant to represent the renewal of humanity because it was he alone who found favor with God prior to the coming of the flood way back in Genesis 6 verse 8. However, just as with Adam, Noah did not fulfill the role to which God called him. How did he miss this? Scripture does not prescribe the prohibition of alcohol, but it never shies away from issuing warnings about its improper consumption and what such a state says about our spiritual condition. So in verse 21, we see that after Noah planted a vineyard in due time, which must have taken a while because it's not an overnight thing, Noah drank the fruit of the vine. He drank the wine that he had created. He became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. The image here is of a loss of control. Noah was inebriated to such an extent that he didn't even realize that he was naked as he slept. And so while he was identified as righteous back in Genesis 6, he nonetheless falls due to temptation in Genesis 9. But what I want us to see is that the point of this text is not Noah's excess. Instead, it is Ham's response. The reason for this is that one true measure of a person's moral of rightness is not necessarily whether they are free of failure, but how they respond to the folly of another. Do they remain steadfast or do they glory in another person's sin? And to glory in another person's sin in this way was one of Paul's indictments later on of pagan unbelievers in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, because in that passage, Paul describes how such men and women not only were consumed with sinful passion in their own hearts, but that they also celebrated and gave approval to the same behavior in the lives of others, even though they knew that such choices merited condemnation. These characteristics are also present in the way that Ham responded to Noah's nakedness. Verse 22 tells us that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Notice again this description, Ham is the father of Canaan. But what did Ham do? Over the years, commentators, because they have believed that Ham's offense had to be somehow greater than what is depicted in this text, have tried to figure out whether there might be some deeper sexual innuendo or depravity present in Ham's actions. But in an ancient Near Eastern context where honor for father and mother would have been so esteemed, what Ham did was wicked enough. It wasn't some greater discretion, but he looked upon his father's condition. And we can't blame Ham's immaturity. Isn't it as if he was some adolescent? He was at least 101 years old when this event happened. And so you've got a 600-year-old father, a 100-year-old son, and instead of covering him after seeing him, Ham boasts to his brothers of what he had seen. 
Thankfully, Shem and Japheth were more mature and graded, demonstrated greater concern for their father. So when they hear from Ham, instead of passivity, they act. But they are very careful not to fall into the same error as their brother. So in verse 23, it says that they took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders. But a deeper reading of the Hebrew will tell us it wasn't just a garment, but it was the garment. It means the garment that covered Noah. And so if this is the case, then not only did Ham see his father's nakedness and brag about it to his brothers, but he also took Noah's cloak so that he would be able to cover, he would not be able to cover himself when he awoke. He compounded the glory that he took in Noah's condition with intentional exposure and humiliation. Sham and Japheth, though, they take this garment and still so careful not to expose their father further, they walk backwards and they cover him. And so the event then in this passage that we see in verses 20 through 23 is this, that Ham, through pride and hubris, dishonored his father and bragged of this with others in a spirit of gossip and disrespect. And even worse, instead of covering his father, he took Noah's garment so that he would remain uncovered were it not for the interventions of his brothers. So as Noah awakens and he learns of what Ham has done, he is justifiably distressed. And this leads us to the oracle. We had the event and now we have the oracle. Some have called this a prophecy, but a prophecy represents a word that's given by God in judgment, whereas an oracle reflects a person's calling upon God to bring judgment. One comes from God, the other issues forth from man. So in verse 25, Noah says, "'Cursed be Canaan.'" A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Wait a second. Ham is the one who sinned against Noah. But here we see Noah calling on God to curse Canaan. Why is this? Ultimately, the text doesn't tell us. Wish it did. Because most explanations that do try to find some connection are unsatisfactory. They either attempt to say that it was Canaan who actually sinned against Noah and that the text is actually uh, in error or that there was something about Canaan that Noah saw that mirrored Ham's rebellion. But all of these are speculative at best. There is one aspect of Noah's oracle that might help us understand what's going on here. So look at verse 26. After Noah calls down his curse on Canaan, he blesses Shem and Japheth, but he does so in a unique way. He says, blessed be the Lord the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And he says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Notice the contrast. Canaan is cursed, but God is blessed. And through God, Shem is now set apart with Japheth joining in on the blessing of Shem. So if you were a part of the nation of Israel, Hearing this narrative, ready to enter in to the land that God had promised after a long history of enslavement, but then freedom and now wandering in the wilderness, something would have likely clicked for you at this point. Israel received this narrative from God through Moses as they were preparing to enter the land of the very people who were descendant from Canaan, who is cursed in this passage. They would have heard this, and of how Noah set apart Canaan from those who were identified with the Lord God, and it would have helped to underscore just what it was that God had done through the line of Shem, from whom would one day come Abraham and ultimately the people of Israel. 
And now what he intended to do through Israel as they prepare to enter this land. It would have also helped to underscore the severe threat that the Canaanites represented. So what began in this account where Noah calls upon God to curse Canaan would now be expressed fully through the ongoing paganism of subsequent generations within the Canaanites. And so Israel needed to understand that this condition among Canaan was deeply ingrained and it came from this very event all so that they would have no misconceptions at all about the threat that they represented to God's people and God's mission. In other words, what we have here is actually a reoccurrence of what we've seen before. We see the children of Eve. We see Shem and his descendants, including Israel. And we see the children of the the serpent through Canaan and his offspring. And so in answering the question, why is this text here and what does it mean? We can say this. This passage, Genesis 9, 18 through 29, moves forward the narrative of redemption. And it does this by introducing one of the major causes of calamity for Israel as they prepare to enter the conquest of the land of Canaan. But it also highlights God's continued blessing on the line of Eve's children, helping us as modern readers to have increased confidence in God's purposes ultimately to bring redemption through Jesus Christ. It continues the line. It continues the movement of the story. Far from being a throwaway fragment, we see now a major antagonist, as well as the demonstration of continuity in God's work in the history of redemption. But as we said at the beginning of our time, one tendency that we have, in addition to maybe disregarding the significance of this text, is to actually treat it in such a way that can lead us to theological error. And as we consider this passage in particular, there is one such historical error that is worth noting. It's worth noting so that we can rightly refute the sinful belief that it introduced, but also so that we can understand how to guard against similarly wrong-headed conclusions as we read other sections of Scripture and apply them to our world. This historical error is what has been referred to as the curse of Ham. The curse of Ham. The curse of Ham refers to an interpretation of this passage that was used to justify the horrible sins of racism, racist violence, slavery, and legal discrimination against those who were believed to have descended from Ham, namely those of African ancestry. The curse of Ham, as we've just read it, feels like a pretty disconnected way of understanding this text, but this interpretation originated long after the events depicted in this passage as people began to associate specific ethnic groups with those who are described in the text. And while it is not an error to recognize that different people groups are described as descending from Noah's sons, what happened with the so-called curse of Ham is that this recognition happened, but it occurred in a way that it distorted and twisted the meaning and purpose of this passage. The curse of Ham has been believed in a number of different parts of the world, but has perhaps seen its greatest representation in its application in an American context where it was used to justify slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries and legal segregation in the 20th. There are three significant errors that led to this devastating interpretation of Genesis 9, 18 through 29. First, there's a misreading of who is actually cursed in the passage. 
People ignored the fact that it was Canaan specifically that received Noah's oracle rather than all of Ham's sons. Genesis 10 will tell us that Ham had four sons. Canaan was the youngest. What we also know is that the Canaanites resided in Mesopotamia rather than being people who lived in Africa. Second, there was the wrong assumption that Canaan's servitude reflected primarily ethnic or racial differences rather than the very clear spiritual realities of Canaan's paganistic beliefs alongside Israel's identity as God's people. And third, there was the devastating impact of believing that those who supposedly made up this cursed group, black men and women, were consigned to their supposed inferiority by divine decree. As we know, the impact of such a severe misreading of Scripture led men and women who claimed the name of Christ to justify such satanic institutions as slavery in the American South or legal separation after its abolition. History is replete with examples of pastors and other Christians during this time defending such a perspective based upon this interpretation. The rationale, however, is sickening. If God has so designated the descendants of Shem as the ones through whom the promise of redemption came, seen in America as whites, and if God has cursed Ham and his descendants, seen as African-Americans, then it is imperative that those two groups are to remain separate if God's promises were to be fulfilled. And while often viewed today as a kind of fringe view that has rightly been dismantled, Such a misreading of Scripture permeated the American church well beyond the time of slavery, and even into the middle of the 20th century was promoted by the pastor of the then largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention located right here in Dallas. In numerous sermons in the 50s and 60s, given both to the congregation of First Baptist Dallas as well as in other settings, Pastor W.A. Criswell advanced this interpretation of Genesis 9 in favor of the ongoing segregation of whites and blacks, stating that to accept desegregation would be, quote, a denial of all that we believe in. And while not strictly prohibiting the membership of black Dallasites at First Baptist, Criswell only changed his views as he ascended to the role of SBC president in 1968, where he called his church to turn away from its functional segregation as his interpretation and its impact came under greater scrutiny from outside voices. My point here is not to disparage any individual or church, but to highlight how such an insidious use of Scripture can find its way into places of influence, even within our own tradition. And the way in which such errant ideologies reflect a cancer in the body of Christ that hinders its health and its mission. False doctrines like these distort the true gospel. They do so because they violate Scripture's clear teaching. First, about the nature of people, that we are all made in God's image and that we possess dignity and honor simply for that fact alone. Second, of the universality of sin, that we have all borne the corrupting influence of sin on our hearts and apart from Christ are without life or hope. And third, the free gift of salvation to all on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the redeeming of that image in conformity to the image of Christ. The great irony is that in that era, 
It was claimed that efforts to rectify racism and its effects by renouncing the curse of Ham represented an unnecessary distraction to gospel proclamation rather than the true obstacle that it was. So how does something like the curse of Ham happen? How does such an error come to pass and become a prominent perspective? How is it possible that these kinds of things can be perpetuated within the church without correction? There are at least three reasons, and they all correspond to the interpretive missteps that we identified earlier. First is a lack of narrative coherence. Proponents of the curse of Ham plainly misread what the text actually said, and they conflated it with a presupposition about African people groups, rather than a more accurate reading that focused on the identification of Canaan and his descendants and their role in the story of the nation of Israel. Narrative coherence means having a sense of the whole, of understanding how a passage like this fits into the broader context of of God's story of redemption. The curse of Ham removes narrative coherence by highlighting one specific thing and elevating it to a place of prominence in its interpretation. But second is the absence of moral consistency. By moral consistency, I mean the failure to anticipate the way that such a false interpretation would lead to the devaluation of an entire population, resulting in true sin against God's image bearers. In contrast, a right reading of a text like this is going to lead to right application. It will protect us against the kind of error represented in the curse of Ham, and it will ensure that we live out a Christ-like ethic towards others instead of preventing such an ethic from being expressed in our lives. The third is the avoidance of spiritual objectivity. In the end, the curse of Ham became popularized because it was a way to subjectively justify sinful beliefs about one group of people and to hold on to sinful desires to retain power, control, all out of the misguided notion of a certain way of life in American society. Yet a spiritually objective reading of Genesis 9 means reading into this text only what God means to say rather than to be skewed by the thoughts and intentions of the human heart expressed in contemporary culture, which as we have seen time and again, are only evil continually. It means us giving interpretive authority to the Spirit of God and humbly and prayerfully submitting our understanding of a passage to the Spirit who gives illumination of such truth in concert with the message of the gospel of Jesus. So those three characteristics of narrative coherence, learning to read scripture and understanding our place of God's story of redemption with a view of the whole, of moral consistency, applying scripture with a view towards Christ-like love, and third, of spiritual objectivity, of submitting our interpretation to the leading of the Spirit. This can help us overcome not only aberrant theology like the curse of Ham, but a whole slew of errors. The way that the church has responded to issues of abuse, how it views its place in the context of a political society, and so forth. But for today, I want us to see how these three attributes actually help us to see Jesus in his gospel, even from a passage like this. Okay, so this leads us to the third point. How does this text show us Jesus? How does it lead us to our Redeemer? I want to highlight one statement in this passage, which is in verses 26 and 27. Look back with me. It says this, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem.'" 
and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Earlier, we said that it was not an inherent error to acknowledge the various people groups that are referenced in this passage as well as in the table of nations that we will learn about next week in Genesis 10. But one group of people that are often overlooked in reading this text are the descendants of Japheth. However, if we follow the genealogies throughout the centuries, what we will find regarding Japheth's descendants is that by the time we get to the New Testament, these people will come to be known by a name that's familiar to us, the Gentiles. The Gentiles, while referring to specific groups of people in the times of Scripture, on a spiritual level, ultimately are to be understood as including anyone who was not part of the people of Israel, any non-Jew who, as Paul will say in Ephesians 2.12, was separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Yet here in Genesis 9, we see a blessing on Japheth, specifically in the form of Noah calling on God to enlarge Japheth and enable him to dwell in the tents of Shem. In other words, Japheth and his descendants were to enjoy the privileges of living beside and experiencing the blessing of the descendants of Shem. We know ultimately through history that this didn't take place. Shem's descendants became those who comprised the people of Israel. And while Israel was charged by God to be the instrument of God's blessing to all nations because of their own forays into sin and idolatry, they didn't fulfill that to which they were called by God. Japheth's descendants spread all across the world, but were ultimately seen as outsiders by the people of God. They in turn represented all who stood outside of the promise, all who were alienated, and strangers to those covenants of promise. And what will be emphatically stressed in the New Testament, however, is that no matter our ancestor, because of our shared innate spiritual condition, our sin-wrought enslavement to futility and brokenness, our hopelessness and destitution, this is a group that includes us all. But that sober observation that Paul made in Ephesians 2.12 of this separation and alienation, it gives way to the glorious remedy in verse 13 of our inclusion and reconciliation. Ephesians 2.13 says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Noah cursed Canaan. And in doing so, set in motion the conflict that existed between Israel and those who inhabited the land to which they were promised. Yet Noah blessed Japheth. And in so doing, foreshadowed the day when redemptive history would reach its height and the full inclusion of the Gentiles, you and me, would come by means of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All to bring sinners to salvation and to make spiritually dead men and women alive by his grace. The result of seeing this text in its right interpretation then is a sense of confidence at what God is doing 
and what it leads towards, what it leads towards in our salvation of a way then that that overflows into our lives so that we can be the bearers of the message of reconciliation to all people of what Jesus can offer to a person who is broken because of sin and how that reflects God's leading in our lives rather than our attempts to do it on our own apart from him. And so as we reflect on this text, my prayer for us is that we would fix our hearts on him all so that we might see the fullness of that story that that story would begin and continue the work of transforming our lives so that we would live for him. Let's pray to this end. Father, would you help us now as we prepare to come to your table? Would you help us to exult in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? to praise the one who came to bring near all those who found themselves far away because of sin. We thank you that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. We have been made alive. We pray that you would remind us anew this morning of your grace, that we might live for you, that we might turn from sin and walk in love, that we would live as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.